can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Pushkin. Previously on Deep Cover. I think I got a message from... Columbia Security saying they wanted to talk to me. And I was like, oh, shit. I remember the chief asking me, like, how far are you going to take this? <laughs> and I said, chief, until I can interview Esther Reed, I can't clear this tip. I went to get a U-Haul truck because I had decided I'm freaking getting out of here. So I went upstairs, packed the quickest bag I could pack, grabbed my dogs, called a cab, and left. What did you do with the U-Haul? Left it there. That's kind of crazy. I know. All of it's crazy. I was scared. When Esther fled New York City, she didn't get very far. Basically, she just crossed the Hudson River and stopped a few miles away in Secaucus, New Jersey. Got a hotel room. She was with her two little Shih Tzus, Poochin and Odie. And they were just looking at her, the way dogs do, as if to say... What's the plan, boss? Like, what is going through your brain when you're in that hotel room in Jersey? Uh, I have no no idea. I mean, that was absolute panic. Uh, I knew I needed to get a flight. And so I remember I needed vet certificates for my dogs to fly. So she finds a vet who basically certifies that these dogs don't have rabies or whatever. And then she comes up with a plan. She decides to fly to Ohio. And then, a few weeks later, catches a ride to Chicago using a ride share that she found on Craigslist. Your, your life is like one series of ridiculous, like, yes. logistical challenges. Like, you're on the, you are on the run at this point. That is, that's... Yes. I, I didn't necessarily view myself. I, I was still hoping that it wouldn't be a big deal and they would, like, be over it. 
So I didn't realize I was on the run. I just kept thinking like, eh. Well, come on. I mean, you 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 left the U-Haul in front of your apartment and uh, left your apartment like you. I mean, yeah, at that moment, I was, but I was. I was, I, I should say that I, I I knew I was on the run, but I still was thinking I can avoid trouble. Like if I could just like lay low, uh, this could work out. <laughs> I'm a, a an undying optimist, and so I I really did think like maybe they won't be able to find me, just that it would become a cold case. <clears throat> And like they would stop devoting resources to it. And it might have become a cold case. After all, at this point, Esther was just a missing person of interest in a possible case of identity theft. And finding her, it was all about resources. Like, how badly do you want to find her? And unless her case became some kind of top priority, which it currently wasn't, well, then there wouldn't be much of a manhunt, or womanhunt, as it were. As far as Esther was concerned... She was relatively safe. Meanwhile, down in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, John Campbell was kind of at a loss. He was supposed to be solving the case of Brooke Henson, who'd vanished seven years before. It was now 2006. And this whole other thing with Esther Reed up at Columbia, it was just a lead that John was chasing down, a tip a kind of side trail that he'd been jogging down in the hopes of finding Brooke, or at least a clue as to what had happened to Brooke. But Esther's trail was getting cold. She fled New York City in the summer, and by Christmas time, six months later, John still had no idea where Esther was, and he was no closer to solving the Brooke Henson case either. John's boss wanted an update. We had a new chief of police, and he came in and he said, where are we on this Henson tip thing? I said, we're dead in the water. I mean, she didn't show up to, to give a DNA sample like she said she would. She hasn't been back to her apartment. Nobody knows. She hasn't been to class. Nobody knows where she went. She's in the wind. She's gone. John's boss, the chief, had shared some information about the case with the local press. But apparently, they wanted more details. So the chief tells John, Open the file and let the press have whatever they want. And I said, all right. Are you sure? Are you kidding? Because we've never done that. And he's like, yeah, we're an open book. And I said, okay, I mean, he's the chief. The Traveler's Rest Police Department shared what they knew with the local press, told them that there was this imposter who'd stolen Brooks' identity and gotten into an Ivy League school, and for the first time revealed her name publicly, Esther Reed. We opened the book, and we told them everything we had. And then they took that and ran. This decision to open the file turns out to be a huge deal. John shares the evidence and the case history, but also his espionage theories, even if some of those theories were half-baked. And I should note, not everyone in law enforcement was buying into John's ideas. Over at the Secret Service, Don Long was skeptical. But the Secret Service wasn't talking to the media. John was. Point is, once John started talking, he set something in motion, a media juggernaut. Pretty soon, everyone would know about Esther Reed, and finding her would become more than just a priority for law enforcement. It would become a reality TV show of sorts, a contest to see who could find her first.
I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, season three, never seen again. Episode 4, A Very Sophisticated Gale. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. 
was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. So, the local TV station down in Greenville, South Carolina, runs its story. And right away, John Campbell's phone rings. On the other end was a guy named Tom Colbert from California. Tom was a former news guy, used to work for CBS and Paramount. But now he had his own business. He worked closely with local journalists. They would feed him tips, and then Tom would pass the best ones along to the big media outlets. Tom charged a finder's fee, of course, and he gave a cut to the local news guys. He was basically a middleman. And Tom, he was good at his job. Some people called him the gem hunter, because Tom, he found the gems. Anyway, Tom gets this tip from a TV reporter in Greenville about the Esther Reed story. And right away, he calls John Campbell to get his take on Esther. He talked about the potential for being a Russian spy, going to various universities undercover. It had so many interesting elements. The fact that it could be involved with espionage, uh, that wasn't clear to me until John really laid it out and said, no, I, I really think this gal has a different name for other reasons. I thought it was maybe just for money, trying to get into bank accounts. No. And he said, no, this is a very sophisticated gal. This was John's pet theory, that Esther was a spy. He stressed the fact that Esther had dated several military men, including two West Point cadets and a Naval Academy midshipman, and that she seemed to be a master at creating aliases and then vanishing. Tom was intrigued. I mean, there are a lot of people stealing names, but something dealing with espionage, spies, that was a fascinating fascinating development and opened my eyes. Tom jumped on the story. Within a day or so, he sent out a press release. It told the story of how John Campbell was tracking down a mysterious con artist. It quotes John as saying, she's incredibly bright, articulate, and a conniving, manipulative person, almost to the point of being pathological. The press release also says that Esther seduced several military men. It adds, quote, Reed allegedly has been funded through mysterious money orders for years from sources in Germany and Italy. She has told lovers she is a professional chess player. The press release had a long list of contacts, including John Campbell, Esther's sister, and also the Fleischmans, her ex-boyfriend's parents. Three days later, Esther was on the front page of the New York Post. The banner headline was, Kleptobraniac, ID Thief Scams Colleges. The article heralded her as a brazen brunette beauty. It included comments from both John Campbell and Ian's father, Fred Fleischman, suggesting that Esther was a spy. The article ended with a quote from John saying, 
the $1 million question is where she turns up next and as who. It was kind of like the old children's game, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Only a version that was spy-themed and a bit sexed up. The article had some facts and a lot of conjecture. It made for great reading. That's what really set off a firestorm of the phones ringing. John suddenly had to balance being a detective, a spokesman, and a dad, because he had a toddler at the time. I have a little office in the police department, and I'd be there for hours and hours and hours. So my son's like on the floor, playing under my desk, playing with his Hot Wheels in the hallway and stuff like that, while I'm on the phone with the press. (laughs) For a while, it basically became a full-time job for John. So anybody that called, I talked to anybody. They could get me on the phone. And I talked for days straight. The phone rang for days, nonstop, from reporters. And when people couldn't get a hold of me, they just published whatever somebody else, whatever I told somebody else. There's all kinds of things that say, John Campbell said, I'm like, I never talked to that guy in my whole life. I don't even know who that is. You know? <laughs> As the newspaper clippings piled up, things got serious. A grand jury formally indicted Esther. This happened in September of 2007, roughly a year after Esther fled New York City. Prosecutors charged her with fraud and identity theft. They said Esther fraudulently obtained a copy of Brooks' birth certificate, applied for a U.S. passport, and took out more than $100,000 in student loans. And with this indictment, Esther officially became a federal fugitive. Meanwhile, 48 Hours, the CBS news show, picked up the story. They decided to do a full-hour segment on Esther Reed. In fact, they ultimately did two segments, and I want to share some excerpts from both of them. Capture the Queen, tonight's 48 Hours mystery. The producers hired a professional sleuth to track Esther down. My name is Stephen Rombaum. I'm a private investigator, and I am currently hunting for Esther Reed. Over the course of his career, Stephen had chased after some pretty serious bad guys, including Nazi war criminals. Now, Stephen told viewers about his latest target. This is a woman that completely reinvented herself. From being a chubby Montana high school dropout to an attractive Ivy League co-ed, able to con her way into Harvard, into Columbia, going to military balls at West Point, She is certainly not above using her feminine wiles to get whatever she wants. So Stephen, the private eye, he hits the road, looking for Esther. It's pretty wild, actually, because at this point, there's the official law enforcement search for Esther Reed, being led by the Secret Service and John Campbell. And then there's the made-for-TV version of this search, being led by Stephen. And along with him, one of the show's hosts, Peter Van Zandt. How do you begin? Well, we begin by finding out everything we can about her background, her aliases, places where she's lived. Rombaum heads first to Esther's last known address, the Manhattan apartment where she was living as Brooke Henson. And then we see Steve Rombaum going through Esther's abandoned possessions. Thank goodness her landlord saved all of this. This is just extraordinary. It's everything a private eye could hope for. A treasure trove of documents from Esther's life as Brooke. She left behind her credit card bills, her bank statements, her phone bills. Countless, countless leads. 
So Steve is gathering some pretty important clues about where Esther might be. Good old-fashioned detective work. But there are other moments when the story feels pure tabloid, and it's less about financial crimes and more about Esther's personal life. Here's the show's host, Peter Van Zant again. And some of her targets were the men she was dating. How many men do you think Esther Reed has gone through? I'm aware of about a dozen. They talked about her like she was some sort of femme fatale. And that's kind of the vibe throughout these two episodes. The producers pick up on the whole spy theory and run with it. They get a hold of some instant messages between Esther and one of her West Point boyfriends. In the exchange, the boyfriend says that he's been studying maps and timelines in his military science class. Esther wrote back, I want to see it when you're finished. Steve, the private eye, gives his analysis on this too. This is a classic method of espionage, using, using sex and using intimacy to get this sort of information. I mean, this is Matahari 101. Matahari. I want to dive into this reference for a sec. Matahari was an exotic dancer who was accused of being a spy during World War I. In old photos, she's dressed as a belly dancer, wearing a jewel-encrusted bra. Doesn't look a thing like Esther Reed. And yet, there's some really interesting parallels. Mata Hari was actually a Dutch woman named Margarita Zella. She too was running from a troubled past. Parents divorced, mom died. She was left with relatives she didn't care for. So, she reinvented herself. Told some she was a Javanese princess and others that she was an Indian temple dancer. During the war, a French intelligence officer became convinced that she was a spy. There wasn't a ton of proof, but in the end, she was executed by a firing squad. Since then, she's become a legend, a stock character, like the mean stepmother or the evil CEO. And the thing about stock characters is we believe in them. We look for them and we call them out even when the facts don't add up. Hello? Yeah. Okay, okay. I think we're... This is just where we're going. Well, right. if, if, if not, I'm not redoing the phone call. I reached out to Steve Rombaum, the private eye. I was still wondering about the whole spy thing. Like, back then, how serious were people in the media and in law enforcement about this espionage theory? They were concerned that, you know, maybe she's a spy for Iran, maybe she's a spy for, for uh, you know, Russia. Both of those things actually came up. Uh, I'll confess I laughed, but not everybody laughed. Steve says he never really bought into the idea that Esther was a spy or a master criminal of any kind. I mean, you know, this was not a young female Bernie Madoff who stole millions. You're talking about defrauding the scholarship system and getting a fake birth certificate and building a false identity. I can introduce you to probably 10,000 people who've done, who've done the same or worse. So I asked him... What was it then about the Esther Reed case that the media was so keen on? 
number one, she was a young female that they, they were able to make it look like she was one step ahead of the uh, combined investigative forces of America, um, which I have to tell you wasn't true. Because federal agents were working on bigger cases and didn't think that this was, you know, a major national security event until everybody made it look like that. And then there was the spy story and the whole perception that she was a femme fatale, not to mention the fact that she had conned the Ivy Leagues. Basically, as far as I could tell, it all just made for good TV. Steve told me that he didn't want to badmouth the media because of all the good he's seen it do. I'll be very honest. I'm not going to be hypocritical and deny this. I've worked with the media dozens of times to get important and and urgent matters, you know, into the public eye and kind of nudge law enforcement. These were cases where kids had gone missing or where Steve was tracking down alleged war criminals, important matters that had been overlooked, stories that Steve felt should be at the top of the media food chain. I think moving Esther Reed to the top of the food chain was, you know, a wee bit cynical. Well, do you feel like you were a part of that at all? Sure. Sure. I mean, I was working a case. I did not say anything during that case to anyone that was in the slightest bit exaggeration. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys tennis platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. 
And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. When Steve Rombaum was filming for 48 hours and crisscrossing the country, tracking down Esther Reed. He remained confident in his mission. I would be very surprised if we don't find her. If I didn't genuinely believe that, I wouldn't be daring enough to say it on television. But by the time the first 48 Hours special aired in December of 2007, Steve hadn't found her. And the story was just getting bigger and bigger. Around the same time, the legendary TV show America's Most Wanted also ran a story on Esther and some other female fugitives, too. They called the episode Bad Girls. America's Most Wanted was a big deal back then, especially if you worked in law enforcement. Like, if you got your case on that show, it greatly increased the chances that you'd catch your fugitive. Because so many people watched the show and then called in with tips. When I spoke with Don Long, the Secret Service agent, he told me he was actually surprised that Esther made it onto the show. Which makes sense to me. I mean, she was not a domestic terrorist or a serial killer or a bank robber. But be that as it may, she was now on everyone's radar. The, the fact that this was highlighted on America's Most Wanted certainly, um, you know, raised or elevated the level here within the Secret Service. 
Um, it also enlightened me on some investigative steps I could take to highlight the case even more within my own agency. Don talked to his superiors at headquarters in D.C. and made the case that Esther should also be on the Secret Service's most wanted list. They agreed and put her on the list. The way Don saw it, he had a job to do, and this helped him do it. The more people that are looking for your suspect, the better chance you have of finding them. Esther's face and her story were now everywhere, and the feds had made it clear. Capturing her was officially a priority. So you're probably wondering at this point, what was Esther doing while all this was happening? Like, how was she processing this media circus? Well, the short answer is, it took a while for the circus to get underway. Esther had actually been on the run for a year and a half by the time the first 48 Hours story ran. And during all this time leading up to that, Esther cut off all contact with her old friends. Did you stay in touch with anyone no. during that time? No. No, absolutely nobody knew where I was at. Nothing. Did you make new friends? mm You were just like solo with... My babies, yes. With your dogs. <laughs> Wow, that's a long time to be solo. Yes. It was a very, very bad period. Esther stayed at cheap rentals and motels, mainly in the Midwest. She says she squeaked by. For money, she had this little trick where she bought clothing at JCPenney on sale and then found a way to return the merchandise for the full price. She says she was just taking advantage of a loophole in the system. I think it's safe to say it was a scam. During this time, she pretty much became a shut-in. She says she was laying low, hoping this would all just blow over. And to be honest, this is a part of her story that I didn't fully get. Like, wasn't she Googling herself? Part of it may have been denial, but Esther also told me that she worried that by inputting certain search terms about herself, that she might tip off the authorities and give away her location. So she didn't do it. And then one day... She was up in Michigan, staying in a motel. She was in her room with her dogs, watching TV, when a very brief segment on Fox News came on, featuring her. And I remember seeing my picture and it saying, Esther Reed. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, literally, oh, shit. This isn't going to go away. Esther says the segment was short, but it told her enough told her that the authorities were looking for her and they had started connecting the dots, uncovering at least some of the aliases that she'd used. I knew they would probably be able to figure out that I wasn't Brooke Henson, but I didn't think they um, would connect Brooke Henson to Esther Reed. Up until then, she had believed that her aliases would help keep her safe. She held on to all of her paperwork, all of her fraudulently obtained IDs. Yeah, I hold on to everything. You had your, like, Jason Bourne wallet with all your IDs. Yes. It was hidden in the bottom of my trunk, where I always kept it. But she realized that none of that would keep her safe any longer. In fact, those IDs were now a liability. Immediately, I went and cut up every piece of ID I had on me. and I cut it all up, like, with little scissors into tiny little pieces and flushed them. Wow. You were really pretty. Well, I felt like they might be coming right this moment, you know, like... I don't handle panic very well, clearly. 
There were so many instances where Esther could have come clean, turned herself in quietly without much fanfare, and maybe straightened everything out. But not now. So you you cut all these up and flush them on the toilet, and then what? I think then I just sat on the bed and panicked. Esther didn't know the full extent of it or how it had happened. But this thing, this story, it had grown, building momentum like a tsunami. A local TV reporter in Greenville, South Carolina, had tipped off Tom Colbert, the gem hunter, who then brought it to the national media. Before long, it was a newspaper cover story, then fodder for cable news, and finally, a full-blown hour on one of America's best-known TV shows. There were no longer any easy outs, no explaining this away. Yeah, sure, maybe she was no Bernie Madoff. And yeah, perhaps the espionage theory was just that, a theory. But at this point, it didn't matter. The public was now hooked, and so were people in positions of power. They were all looking for the mystery girl, the Matahari. And Esther, she was it. The question now, was there any place left for her to hide? Next time on Deep Cover. I mean, we were chasing her around the country and, you know, we would look at each other and say, how, how are we not finding this young girl who, you know, stole some identities? But good grief, guys, we're the federal government here. We ought to be able to do that. Cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. It's edited by Karen Shikurji. Mastering by Jake Gorski. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?" I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover: The Nameless Man. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Thank you.